Matthew 25. We're in our series called, um, uh, called Celebrating Hidden Heroes, and this morning I want to talk about uh, Zechariah uh, and Elizabeth. And I want to start off with a question, and the question is, is this, would you, rather, would you rather be famous or would you rather serve as the mentor to someone who would become famous? Now, that's a hard question because most of us uh, think about ourselves first and we would rather personally have that elevation to a place of fame. We want to be known. Why is Facebook growing all over the world? Because Facebook allows us to be known. Social media allows us to be known to many people, people beyond just our friends. So the question I'm asking is, would you rather be famous or would you rather serve as the mentor to someone who is famous? Now, when you think about this question, it really forces you to assess your character. I can't choose to be famous and say that's under my total control. I mean, so many people who become famous have become famous because they did something else, and maybe fame came to them as a product of something else. But if you could serve as the mentor to somebody who became well-known, that, that changes the dynamic of the question. So I, I want you to think about some famous mentor-protege relationships. You got Jethro, who was a mentor to Moses in Exodus chapter 18. You have Plato, who was a mentor to Aristotle. I cannot tell you how much Aristotle shaped early Christian theology. He was not a Christian, but his philosophy shaped early Christian theology. Where you got Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan has consistently said that Phil Jackson was his mentor. How'd you like to be the mentor to the greatest basketball player ever played? That's a pretty amazing place to be. Uh, Walter Cronkite was a famous newsman for many, many years. He says that his mentor was Fred Burney, his high school journalism teacher, uh, and honored him greatly. Uh, he got Chuck Colson, who started Prison Fellowship. He said, you know, two mentors in my life that shaped my life when I first came to Christ, Doug Coe and Tom Phillips. So I'm asking the question again, would you rather be famous or would you rather be the mentor to someone who significantly shaped and changed the world? My dream for you, my dream for all of us here, is that you would aspire to be the person who shapes another who would change the world. P play the role of a spiritual mentor to someone else. Now, for the past 2,000 years, I would say discipleship relationships have changed the world. You look back over the past 2,000 years of church history, and you realize that there was always someone behind the scenes who shaped the person who became great. And my plea to you is that you would become that person behind the scenes who is willing to shape another who might become great in God's sight. This is what we see uh, in the life of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Two people, not very well known, who shaped the life of John the Baptist, who announced the coming of Christ. So I want to see what Zechariah and Elizabeth did 
to shape their son. How do you shape somebody who is going to change the world? Well, the first thing that they did was they imparted identity to John the Baptist. Elizabeth and Zechariah are going to empower their son with a very unique identity. Verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. Now, we've got to stop there just, just for a second, give you a little background. In the Old Testament, uh, identity was connected with the giving and the receiving of a name. This went all the way back to Adam in the book of Genesis. Do you remember when Adam uh, was first comes on the scene in Genesis chapter 2? God says, I'm going to give you a wife, but first... I'm going to parade the animals in front of you, and you're going to name the animals. Well, why does God do that? It's because God is teaching Adam the vocabulary of leadership. Now, all of you who have a profession have a vocabulary to your leadership. If you're a doctor, a nurse, a lawyer, a carpenter, no matter what you do, you have a vocabulary to your leadership. And you, had, you went to school to learn that vocabulary. You can't lead in your field unless you have that particular vocabulary for leadership. God is teaching Adam the vocabulary of leadership. So as he sees an animal, he discerns its nature, he names it, and now he can use that animal as he has authority over the world. Naming was always connected with Leadership. Jesus is the ultimate example of this. John 1.41, Andrew found his brother Simon and said, we have found the Messiah. So Andrew brought Simon to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means the rock. So Peter, Jesus is the new Adam, and he sees character in Peter, and he names him the rock. All I'm saying is this, leadership in the scriptures is involved with naming, and naming conveys identity. So the first way that they're going to shape identity is through the rite of circumcision and then the name, and they're tied together. So why, why circumcision? How, how does that shape identity in the ancient world? Well, what in circumcision, the organ of procreation is cut it's changed as a sign that your descendants are God's, not yours. In other words, in the Old Testament, and here in the beginning of the New Testament, it's the idea that my family is not for me to be proud of in the negative sense, to be arrogant over in the negative sense. My family is God's. They're consecrated to God. They're given over to God. I am not my own. My family is not ultimately mine. My family is part of God's very big story. And as a father, as a mom, I steward my kids in light of that very big story. And circumcision wasn't just a physical thing because the biblical writers say you got to circumcise your heart. The idea is that my heart needs to be consecrated to God as well. Not my literal heart, obviously, but my metaphorical heart, the chooser inside me, 
needs to be consecrated over to God. So they, Elizabeth gave birth to, to John the Baptist. And remember the living in the little village of Ein Karen? That's taken in 1948. Believe me, it was much more rural and remote in, you know, 4 BC when these guys were born. They have a party. The party lasts for eight days. On the eighth day, it was customary for the head of the household to perform the circumcision. And Zechariah is doing this amazed at this miracle child and saying, God, this child is not mine. This child is yours. And I, I give him over to you. I want his physical identity to be a clear demonstration of the fact that he is yours. Brief application. When you mentor somebody, be it a son, a daughter, a student, a friend, you've got to impart to that person that they are not their own. They're God's. Their identity is shaped by God, by God's purposes for the life. Mentoring somebody is all about helping them see their new identity in Jesus Christ. Now, with the circumcision, they also give the name. And you'll, you'll remember that Zechariah is, he's deaf, he's totally deaf, also unable to speak. And so after the circumcision, people address Elizabeth and they say, well, what, what, what will, you, um, will you name him after your husband, Zechariah? Elizabeth answered, no, he should be called John. Now, at that point, the party stopped because it was customary to name the child after the dad. And the people in the party going, whoa, Elizabeth, look, your husband over here can't hear, he can't speak. Don't take advantage of his physical disability by naming him a name that is, that is not Zechariah. Don't take advantage of him like that. This was serious pushback for Elizabeth as she is uh, saying, no, it's, it's, it's going to be, gonna be called, called John. So they uh, said, here, none of your relatives are called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted to be called. Well, Zechariah took out a tablet like this, you see up on the screen, a wax tablet that had a stylus, and he wrote out the words, his name is John, as if, guys, this is a done deal. We've already done this. We've already decided this. His name is John. His name is John. Well, what does John mean? John means Yahweh has been gracious. Now, with the circumcision of, of John, he has an identity with the people of God. He's part of God's big story. With the name John, he's got a story about his personal life. And for the rest of his life, when somebody said, tell me about, your name is John, tell me about your family. Well, my mom and dad were very old. They were well past childbearing years. My dad had a vision of an angel. The angel said that they were going to have a baby, and I am the result of that union. And everybody who heard that would have thought about God's big story and about the other people who couldn't have kids. And yet God miraculously intervened, and they could have, they could have kids. So they're all amazed. Luke 163, they immediately, Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, loosed 
and he spoke blessing to God, and fear came on all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about through the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was upon him. Here's a couple, elderly couple. Here's a miracle child. And the elderly couple has conveyed an identity on this miracle child. And I want to go back to this idea of you being a disciple maker, being a mentor. You stand in the, in the place of Zechariah and Elizabeth, okay? And when you, when you mentor a child or a grandchild or a friend or a coworker or a neighbor, when you mentor or disciple that person, you are conveying an identity toward that person that helps them think about their place in God's big story. Because every new believer has been incorporated into God's big story. It's part of his story from beginning to the time Jesus returns. And for a person to, to receive that vision that they're part of a big story is a big deal in their life. Now, let me, let me mention kind of an interesting uh, thing that I, I read this week. Dr. Elizabeth Lombardo is a wealth psychologist. And uh, she works with very high net worth individuals who suddenly come into great wealth. And uh, she said, there's quite a few people who fit that category in Silicon Valley. Some young guy you know, creates an app and suddenly he goes from zero money to $5 million, $10 million. Uh, yeah, be a nice problem to have, right? So you, you call your, 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 your counselor, your wealth psychologist, and you say to your wealth psychologist, uh, I need to make an appointment, I got, I've got a bit of a problem. I, I now have quite a bit of money. And she's written about this. And, and here, here's, what, here's what she says um, as, as their coach. She, she says, um, when somebody comes upon sudden wealth, they, they've got to switch their mindset. You're, you're all taking notes, right? Like, yeah, this could happen to me. The optimal mindset about wealth consists of two factors. Number one, your personal attitude about money. And number two, the ability to navigate the social pressures of significant wealth. And she coaches them in, t in those two areas. So let me, let me contextualize that with the Christian faith. Because truth be told, when you come to Christ, you are suddenly given instant wealth, phenomenal wealth. And you know what those factors of wealth are? You've got an eternal future in a beautiful place, in a culture of eternal love, You've got a portfolio, a portfolio of astonishing wealth, eternally speaking. You've got eternal purpose for the rest of your life. You've got forgiveness. You've got the Holy Spirit. You have phenomenal wealth. So the wealth psychologist would say, you have to properly understand what you have so that you can use it well, right? And then she talks about navigating the social pressures of that instant wealth. Well, what pressures do you have the moment you come to Christ. Well, Jesus said, look, if they hated the teacher, they might not like you as either. They might like you as well. You may face persecution as a follower of Jesus. That's social pressure. And so if this wealth psychologist is coaching people in these two areas, how much more do we need disciple makers and spiritual mentors 
who coach new believers about the fact that, look, you have this portfolio of assets. It's vast. It's huge. I want to teach you about them. Also, I want to teach you about how to navigate the social pressures of being a new believer in Christ. Not everybody is going to be excited about this. Good disciple makers do that kind of thing. I can, I can imagine that Zechariah does with, with, with John the Baptist. Imagine, you know, Zechariah takes his son camping. They make a fire. And Zechariah is talking about the story of John's life. The story. John, let me tell you the story. I was there in the temple. The angel showed up. The angel gave me this message. You are that child. What did that do to John the Baptist? He probably made him say, yeah. Lord, may, it, may that happen. May that be real and true in my life. How are people in your sphere of influence, going to know about all that spiritual wealth they have? Are they going to read, it, read about it in books? Joel Osteen books? Max Lucado books? Look, lo there are a lot of good books out there. I'm not, I'm not going to be down on any Christian authors that are selling a lot of books these days. But they're not going to get what they could get from you as you convey the wealth that they have in Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing that John and Elizabeth do. They impart identity in the disciple-making process. The second thing that they do is that they nourish their own identity as followers of Christ. Every good disciple-maker has to nourish his, own or her or his, his or her own personal identity. So Zechariah personally nurtures himself with God's uh, epic vision about what he's doing in the world. And we see this in Luke 164. Immediately after naming his son, his mouth was opened, his tongue was loosed, he spoke blessing to God, 167. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Now the cool thing about this is that Zechariah now pens, well actually he didn't pen it, he speaks a psalm uh, of worship and the psalm reflects his understanding of who God is in light of what he's gone through. So let's, let's get a little background again. Remember, he sees the vision of the angel in the temple. He goes back to his little village of Ein Karem. Uh, he's completely deaf. He can't hear. He can't speak at all. He has an enforced spiritual retreat of silence for nine months. Can't hear anything. Can't say anything for nine months. What does Zechariah do with that encounter? He invests it in his relationship with God. We know that because of the psalm that he speaks after nine months. This guy has obviously been meditating on who he is and what God has been doing in his life. When the, when the time of enforced silence is over, he bursts forth with this amazing psalm, and the psalm comes in four parts. Part one is a stunning prediction. What part one is, is a focus on the cross. So verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Question, when was the first visitation and redemption of God's people Israel? It was the Exodus. Remember the Passover lamb? Remember how they killed the Passover lamb? They painted the 
the doorposts and the lentils with the blood, and the angel of death passed over. The event of the exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea was the redemption of the nation Israel. Now there's going to be a second visitation of God and a second redemption. And that is going to come through the one John will announce, the Messiah of Israel. And Zechariah is basically saying, hey, God, hey guys, God is going to do the redemption again. It's going to happen again. This time God is going to do it not through a Passover lamb, but through the ultimate lamb of God. That's not exactly what he says, but that's the theology behind what he says. And I think Zechariah is demonstrating a cross-centered vision. He's demonstrating a cross-centered vision. It's like his life now is zeroed in on God's redemption through a lamb. And if you're going to be a good disciple maker, part of what you need is to have a vision of the cross, that your life is founded on the cross, your significance is rooted in the cross, your being okay with God, your justification is based upon the cross. A robust theology of the cross is essential for somebody who's going to be an effective disciple maker. You need to be the kind of person who picks up his cross daily and follows Christ. That's part one of the psalm. Part two of the psalm is fascinating. It's, it's 69 and 71. God raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of those who hate us. Now, I have to tell you, I love the imagery that is contained in this verse. Horn means power. When he says God raised up a horn of salvation, he's referring to the powerful person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the ultimate person of power. He was a person with a horn. So, let's think about horns for a second. Um, I did a little Google search on the most dangerous animals in the world. And this bad boy on the left is, is basically given the title most dangerous animal in the entire world. He's known on the African continent as the Widowmaker. He's known as the Black Death. And there's a YouTube clip uh, on the internet that shows a water buffalo squaring off against a lion. And I know it's a little difficult to see in this one, but the lion is trying to grab onto the throat of the water buffalo. Water buffalo says, I'll have none of that, digs his horn into the guy's uh, body, and uh, there's a little better picture of it. Uh, that, that had to have hurt the lion. And, and then he flips him over his head, and the lion lands on his back. Now, what was the source of power in that water buffalo? It rested in his horn. The horn. It was a horn of salvation for that water buffalo. Why do we have NFL teams that have horns on their helmets? Let's see. The Rams do. The Texas Longhorns. Hasn't helped the Texas Longhorns this year so much, but... Um, the, the Texans do, the Vikings do. Why do NFL teams have horns in their helmet? Because horns 
are symbolic of power. And Zechariah says, uh, God has raised up a horn of salvation, and that person is Jesus Christ. He is a person with amazing power. And the bottom line is this, having been delivered from the hands of our enemies, we can serve God without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Think about this. The power of God, Zechariah is saying, is the thing that banishes fear. So you're discipling somebody. How many people do you, who you might be discipling or mentoring, how many people do you know who might be encountering anxiety in their life or fear in their life? How many people do you think? A lot. You know, I, uh, when we started Celebrate Recovery, I, did, I decided I was going to go through the whole thing. And um, I didn't think I had a problem. I mean, what problem do I have? And I, I met with a sponsor, and I, I realized so much of my life had been dominated by fear of failure. And the first time I said that publicly at Grace Community Church, I had four men who came up to me, not, not in a line, but, that, but that, that week. And they said to me, I have never told anybody else this, but that's my problem. I deal with fear of failure. How do you overcome that? How do you overcome that? I can promise you, nearly everybody that you would attempt to disciple at some level encounters fear of failure in some way. Being a good disciple maker means that you have a robust theology, not just of the cross, but a robust theology of spiritual power and how spiritual power works. Zechariah now adds another layer to his psalm, and this, is, this time he starts talking about his son. Now he's prophesying about the future of his son. And you, child, referring to this little baby whom he's just circumcised, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will be, go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people. He is worshiping God for the role that his son will play in impacting the world. And again, if you serve as a spiritual coach or a disciple maker, one of the things you can do is you can give people a vision for how they might change somebody in the next generation. I have a friend who uh, I've met with for many, many years, and his example of prayer for his kids has been instructive for me and my prayer for my kids. I would say this person has significantly influenced my motivation, my desire to pray for my kids and not my grandkids. And so part of disciple-making is helping a person see that they can have influence within the next generation. And then the final thing, part of the psalm, is uh, a wonderful conclusion. The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace. So where were they sitting, metaphorically speaking, in the first century? In a place of darkness. Where are a lot of people sitting, metaphorically, in the 21st century, in a place of darkness? 
And people in that place of darkness want to know that there's a light that they can cling to, a light that gives them hope, a light up ahead that gives them focus and purpose in life. And part of being a mentor, a guide, a coach, a disciple maker is giving people that light that helps them find purpose in the present. So this, this psalm is a wonderful piece of poetry, and we've just scratched the surface, but the essence of the psalm is this. Even though the human race is languishing in darkness, God has raised up a powerful redeemer, a new dawn is coming, and God calls John to introduce the world to him, that is, Jesus. Well, that's kind of your role as a disciple maker, a mentor, a guide. It's the, it's the idea of shifting somebody's focus back to the all-sufficient nature of Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean for, for you and I as disciple makers? John nourished, nourished himself on this grand vision. You nourish yourself on the grand vision. Um, think about yourself as a, as a follower of Christ. Do you always feel pumped up and excited to follow Christ? No, you don't. Your motivation looks like the graph of the New York Stock Exchange. It's up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. Some days you're doing good, some days you're not doing good. Some days maybe you have a market crash. What do you do when you have a market crash? You nourish yourself on a robust vision of the cross, a robust vision of power, a robust vision of what God is doing in this world, a robust vision on, about how your life matters to somebody else and you nourish yourself on that robust vision. Remember earlier in March, being in North Africa, holding my little, my little grandson, and, and just praying over my grandson, and realizing this little boy has the potential to change the world in North Africa. Lord Jesus, may, may you bless him, bless him with a strong, vibrant relationship with you. I mean, that was an opportunity for me to nourish my vision in the presence of my grandson. So, Zechariah and Elizabeth impart an identity to John. They nourish their own identity in Christ, and then they settle in. They settle into a life. They, they get about the hard work of leading, hard work of leading. And, uh, it says, uh, the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the desert places until the day of his public appearance in Israel. Boy, there is a lot of interesting information packed into that one verse. The child grew and became strong. Under whose leadership? Zechariah and Elizabeth. How old are they? They probably are in their upper 60s, their, early, their earlier 70s. How do you think it would be to be a first-time parent if you're in your late 60s, early 70s. They're exhausted. They're exhausted. We were with our seven grandchildren over Thanksgiving. And, uh, you know, there have been times where my two daughters have said, Mom, Dad, uh, we're going to be away for a little while. Can you take care of the kids? All seven of them. And I'm, I'm counting the time until they get back. Let's see. When, when did he come back? <laughs> or when my little, my little 
grandson, you know, holds his dirty diaper and says, I need to be changed. Well, you have to wait a little while until your mom gets home, all right? You stay in that room right there, don't leave. Yeah, Zechariah and Elizabeth are tired. They are exhausted, but they're overjoyed because they've got a, a little miracle child. Um, they had to be parents without all the easy things. They didn't have monitors in the kids' bedrooms or little disposable diapers or any of those kinds of things. They're not just grandparent age. They're great-grandparent age. And they're getting after the hard daily work of leading. Discipleship, mentoring, is a hard daily work. If you're significantly mentoring somebody else, you will always come to the time where you think, is this really worth it? <laughs> is this really worth doing? I mean, I'm, I'm up at five. Is this really matter to the person that I'm discipling? You parents, grandparents probably feel the same thing. Are all my investments in my kids, are they really, are they really worth it? When you have a terrible two or a rebellious teenager, is it, is it really worth it? And that's when Discipleship and mentoring and parenting and grandparenting is an act of faith. You do this because God is big and he's good and he's called you to a purpose. But now we've got to speculate about something. And I speculate about the two words that are underlined, desert places. If you take out a map in the back of your Bible, and you look at the village of Enkarim where they, where they were, li were living, and you look at where the desert places were, the desert places are going to be south in the Judean wilderness. And the only inhabited desert place back in those days was the community of Qumran. Uh, Qumran is a fascinating place, dry, dusty place. It's fed by by mountain springs that are, that are fed by these little channels and rivulets of, of water. Uh, there are the ruins of Qumran by the Dead Sea. Uh, I don't know where else John could have grown up in the desert places except perhaps in the place of Qumran. So here's a question. Did Zechariah and Elizabeth make up a will and say, if we die, we want our son John to be raised by the people in Qumran? Now, if I was a parent and I was in my 60s or 70s, I had a little baby, baby boy or girl, and I'm thinking, um, we're probably not going to see this child reach his 20th birthday. I would have made arrangements for this person to be raised by somebody else. The people living in Qumran often raised up children. Is it possible that John the Baptist was raised in Qumran? John the Baptist did not have the theology that the people in the Qumran community had, didn't have that theology. But I can't see anywhere else in the region where John could have been raised. It's pure speculation as to whether he was raised there. But the point is this, if you are a disciple maker, it's always important to tell your protege, the people you're discipling, about the practicalities of life. Elizabeth and Zechariah, had to have prepared for their death. You, you've got to teach people that you're discipling and mentoring about the practical areas of finances. What does it mean to, to have a budget? 
What does it mean to have a will? If you're discipling somebody, they got to have a will. What does it mean for you to craft a will as an act of discipleship? What does it mean for you to have an estate plan? What does it mean for you to have a giving portfolio, a set of places where you give money, a church, a parachurch organization, and so on? Disciple makers don't just deal with the ethereal and the spiritual. They deal with the tangible and the practical. And the parents of John the Baptist certainly did this as he was living in the desert places. Now we come to the payoff, and the payoff is absolutely incredible. Check out Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother the tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and uh, I can't pronounce that word, uh, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. Whoa, wait a second. That's an amazing statement. Think about the people that he's mentioned so far. Caesar, Pilate, Herod, Herod Philip. Uh, Caesar is the emperor of Rome. The Herods are ruling the region of Galilee and Israel and Palestine and all those places. They're ruling that region. Then you have the spiritual leaders, Annas and Caiaphas. Wait a second. Why wouldn't the word of God come to the Roman rulers? Why wouldn't the word of God come to the religious rulers? These are the people who have the institutional authority to get things done. Why doesn't the word of God come to them, the powerful people, the elite people of the world? Why not them? Well, it doesn't come to them, does it? It comes to a guy who was brought up in the desert, who had a dad named Zechariah and a mom named Elizabeth. Here, Zechariah is mentioned in conjunction with the most famous people in the world at the time. And those famous people were destined for oblivion. And Zechariah is destined for greatness. Isn't it interesting that Luke is making a contrast between the worldly elite and the humble people who are used by God? So what does it take to be great? Do I want to strive to be Herod? Annas and Caiaphas? Part of the elite? Or do I want to strive to be like Zechariah? The guy who uh, thought he had a failed career. He thought he had a failed career. Never chosen by lot to go in and do anything significant. He was the guy with a depressed spouse. Spouse, year after year, saying, no baby, no significance, ostracism in my community. They were kind of an outcast within their community because they didn't have kids. Here was a, a couple, painful career, painful social situation, maybe a bit of a painful marriage. And yet, who was the most significant person in Luke 3, verse 1? Zechariah. What that tells us is this. When you choose to be a spiritual mentor, a guide, a disciple maker, you are involving yourself in something of eternal significance.
might not see that way at the time. Raising John the Baptist was a very daily thing that produced exhaustion. But in God's economy, it was hugely, hugely significant. So what I want to say is this. When you choose to pass on your life to somebody else in discipleship, you're choosing to enter into a path that is flat out eternally significant. That's what I want for you. It's what I want for me. It's what I want for me. It's what I want for you. Because I, I, I would like for Bartlesville, Oklahoma, USA, to be a place where God is sending forth equipped people, equipped people who love Jesus and who change the world. Let's stand for a closing prayer. Um, our prayer team is going to be up here after the service, and they would love to pray for you about uh, anything that's on your heart. I will tell you that uh, we, we've had a lot of people t- tell us that uh, we've had a lot of really cool instances of answered prayer recently. Uh, our prayer team is, is privileged to, to, be, to be able to participate in this. So um, if, you, if you need prayer, please do not hesitate to come forward for, for prayer, uh, no matter what that is. Um, Father God, we want to thank you so much for this season. Lord, Christmas is just days away. We want to thank you, Lord, for the example of Zechariah and Elizabeth who are patient, faithful disciple-makers of their son. Lord, during this season, may we be patient, faithful disciple-makers of members of our family. And Lord, may you bring each one of us someone into whom we can pour God's love and spiritual truth. In Jesus' name, amen.